Chapter Three of Half Past Bedtime by H. H. Bashford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three: The Little Ice Men. Marion's daddy was very glad when Captain Jeremy married Gwendolen's aunt, because he and Captain Jeremy had been boys at school together, and he had always been very fond of him. And he was gladder still when Captain Jeremy and Gwendolen's aunt left Bellington Square. They did this a week after the wedding, because Captain Jeremy hated Bellington Square, and they went to live in an old farmhouse two miles out of town. It was a beautiful old house, with a gabled roof and golden-red bricks like a winter sunset, and the halls and passages of it were dark and velvety, and the rooms upstairs smelt of lavender. Leading from the road to the front door was a cobbly path, with lawns on each side of it, and big trees standing on the lawns, with low-spreading branches that touched the grass. Behind the house was a kitchen garden full of cucumber frames and vegetables, and behind that was an orchard with a gate leading into the fields. These were all hard and crinkly with frost, and the fruit trees were bare because it was the second of January, but that made the house seem all the snugger with its low-paneled walls and log fires. When they had been in this house a week, Gwendolen's aunt gave a children's party, and Marion and Cuthbert were asked to go, because their daddy was Captain Jeremy's friend. Marion was very pleased, because she had always liked Gwendolen, although she had never known her very well, but Cuthbert said that he didn't like her and that he'd rather stay at home. Marion told him how much she had improved since her voyage to Monkey Island, but Cuthbert said that he didn't care, and that she was a silly sort of girl anyhow. He was only pretending, however, because just after Christmas he had been in the hospital having his tonsils out, and he had already missed two or three parties, and didn't mean to miss another. So they went to the party, and Cuthbert was rather glad, because one of the girls there was a girl named Doris, who had been in hospital having her tonsils out at the same time as he. She was rather a decent girl, ten years old, with dark-colored eyes and brown hair, and one of her thumbs was double-jointed, and she had been eight times to the seaside. Just at present she was a little pale, and so was Cuthbert himself, and Gwendolen was so brown that when they stood near her they looked paler still. Captain Jeremy came and shook hands with them. "'Hello,' he said. "'What's the matter with you?' It's their tonsils, said Marion. They've just had them out, and of course they're a little pulled down. Captain Jeremy examined them thoughtfully. Cuthbert liked him, and so did Doris. What you want, he said, is a trip with me. That would soon set you up again. Gwendolen and Marion had gone off to play, so Cuthbert and Doris had him to themselves. I should like it very much, said Cuthbert. So would I, said Doris. But I'm afraid Mummy wouldn't let me go. I see, said the captain. Well, I'm off next week to Port Jacobson in the Arctic Circle, but you wouldn't be able to go to school next term if you came with me, because I shan't be back till the middle of May. Cuthbert put his hand up and pinched his throat. It's still rather sore, he said. So is mine, said Doris. 
Captain Jeremy laughed. Well, there's nothing like the Arctic Circle, he said, for people who've just had their tonsils out. Then he spoke to Doris. Let me see, he said. I know where Cuthbert lives, but where do you live? Doris told him that she lived in John Street, which was the next street to Cuthbert's. Her father was dead, and her mummy was rather poor, as she had five other children besides Doris. Captain Jeremy nodded. Then perhaps I shall be able to persuade her, he said, to let me take you off her hands for a bit. Doris danced up and down. Oh, I wish you would, she cried. I'd simply love to see the Arctic Circle. So would I, said Cuthbert, and they were both so excited that they could hardly eat any tea. When Marian heard about it, she wished that she was pale, too, and she wished it ever so much more the next morning when Captain Jeremy called on her father and mother and persuaded them to let Cuthbert go. Then he went to John Street and talked to Doris's mother, and he looked so commanding and yet so gentle that Doris's mother said she would be very glad to let Doris go with him to Port Jacobson. Of course it'll be very cold, he said, and they'll have to wear furs, but we can easily get those when we arrive, and all they'll want for the voyage is plenty of underclothing and their oldest clothes. For a voyage like that, all among the ice, Captain Jeremy's sailing ship wasn't quite suitable, so he had hired a little steamer with very thick sides and a trusty pilot. Port Jacobson was in a sort of bay just under the shelter of Cape Fury, and beyond Cape Fury the coast had hardly been explored. It was all so bare and bleak and rocky. The only people who lived there were a few fishermen, a clergyman named Mr. Smith, and a couple of engineers, who had been there for a year and had just found a coal-mine. It was the engineers who had written to Captain Jeremy because they wanted him to bring them some machinery, and also because they wanted him to take back some of the coal that they had already dug up. That was how Captain Jeremy made his living, fetching and carrying things across the sea. Neither Cuthbert nor Doris was the least bit seasick, and they loved to stand on the bridge beside Captain Jeremy and see the great billows rushing toward the steamer one after another in the bright sunshine. Sometimes they went below into the dark engine-room, where they had to shout to make themselves heard, and where the pistons of the engines slid to and fro like the arms of boxers that never got tired. How they loved the cabin, too, at meal-times, when the cook rolled in with the steaming dishes, and what meals they ate, in spite of the lurching table and the water slamming against the portholes. In a couple of days' time they had forgotten all about their tonsils, and two days after that they had almost forgotten their homes, and a week later they saw something in the distance like the gray ghost of a cathedral. It was an iceberg, the first that they had seen, but soon they began to see them every day, sometimes pale and mournful groups, like broken statues in a cemetery, and sometimes sparkling in the sun, as though they were crusted with a million diamonds. One day they came on deck just after breakfast and saw miles and miles of ice all jumbled together, and three hours later they saw a great cliff, covered with snow, standing out to sea. That was Cape Fury, 
and as they drew nearer they could see a little cluster of dark houses with spires of smoke rising from their chimneys, and that was Port Jacobson. The pilot was on deck now, shouting all the time, and the steamer was going very slowly, with ice on each side of it, and they could see some men coming toward them, with rough-haired dogs pulling sledges. At last the steamer could get no farther, although it was still about a mile from the town, and they cast out anchors and a long cable that they began to carry toward the shore. It seemed very funny to Cuthbert and Doris to feel their feet again on something steady, even though this was only the rough surface of the frozen bay in front of the port. The days were so short here that the sun was already low and the great cape stood dark and menacing while far inland they could see the peaks of mountains slowly fading against the sky. Among the men who had come to meet them were the two engineers and Mr. Smith, and they were very surprised to see Cuthbert and Doris running about on the ice and trying to make snowballs. Then they all set off toward the little town, with the lights shining in its windows, and Mr. Smith said that they must stay with him, because he and Mr. Smith had no children. Captain Jeremy was to stay with the two engineers, who had built a little house of their own, but they all came in to supper with the Smiths, and Cuthbert and Doris were allowed to sit up. "'Tomorrow,' said Mr. Smith, "'we'll get you some furs, and then you'll be able to go tobogganing with the other children.' And Cuthbert and Doris said, "'Hooray!' because they had learned to toboggan on Fairbarrow Down. Just before they went to bed they saw a wonderful thing for the whole of the sky began to quiver, and beautiful colors went dancing across it, melting away and then coming back again. These were the northern lights, or the aurora borealis, and Cuthbert and Doris could have watched them all night. But they soon fell asleep, and most of the next day they were out tobogganing with the other children, and they soon became so good at it that they could go as fast as any of them, and hardly ever had a spill. By the end of the week they had got into the habit of climbing on to the top of Cape Fury and tobogganing back again more than a mile and a half right down to Mr. Smith's house. The first time they climbed up there the slope had looked so steep and the roofs of the houses so far below them that they had stood for nearly ten minutes before they could make up their minds to start. But some of the other children had done it, and at last Doris had said, Well, come on, Cuthbert, we mustn't be afraid. And Cuthbert had told her to hold on tight, and so they had pushed off over the frozen snow. By the time they had got halfway they were going so fast that the air was roaring in their ears, but the track was straight and they had kept in the middle of it and ran safely into the town. After that it didn't seem worthwhile to go tobogganing on any of the lower hills, and that was how it came about that the following Wednesday they found themselves, as usual, on the top of Cape Fury. It was a still cold day, and the air was so clear that they could see the coast for miles and miles, and the tops of the mountains far inland that they had never seen before. Below them, in the bay, stuck in the ice, they could see the little steamer, with the sailors on the deck, and beyond the ice a strip of blue water, and beyond that again more ice still. That was on one side of them, and on the other they saw the farther slope of Cape Fury, 
slanting down and down and down to the unexplored regions toward the north. It was a gentler slope than the slope toward the town, and suddenly Cuthbert had a great idea. I say, he said, why shouldn't we toboggan down there? I don't suppose anybody has ever done it. What with the wind and the sun and the snow, the cheeks of both of them were like ripe chestnuts, and Doris's eyes began to sparkle as she listened to Cuthbert's great idea. When he was at home, Cuthbert didn't get many ideas, and he generally used to laugh at other people's, so he was very pleased when he got this one, and Doris said that she thought it ripping. We won't go too fast, he said so that if we see a precipice or anything we shall be able to stop ourselves in time. They had a stout little toboggan, just big enough for two, and so they started off down this new slope, with the sun shining and the snow glittering. At first they moved quite slowly, but lower down the side of the hill became steeper, and soon they were going so fast that, even if they had wanted to, they would have found it pretty hard to stop themselves. And then an awful thing happened, for suddenly just in front of them they saw a deep cleft in the snow sliding down at a terrific angle into a sort of tunnel under the hillside. Almost before they could breathe they had plunged into this, and now there was nothing to do but to hold on. They saw the tunnel's mouth leaping toward them, and the next moment they were in darkness. Neither Cuthbert nor Doris had ever been so frightened before. In the pitchy blackness they could see nothing. They could only feel themselves shooting deeper and deeper into the very heart of the frozen earth. Sometimes a bump on the floor of the tunnel would send them careening toward the roof, and then they would come down again with a thud that almost pitched them off the toboggan. Every moment they expected to be killed. There came another tremendous bump, and then they felt their toboggan springing through the air and dropping like a stone into some fearful well. They shut their eyes, waiting for death, and then went rolling over and over, with something strange and soft and feathery wrapping them round like a bedroom quilt. For a minute or two they could only gasp, and then Cuthbert sat up and called to Doris. Uh, "'Hello, Doris,' he said. "'Are you all right?' "'Yes, I think so,' said Doris. "'Are you?' Cuthbert told her that he was, and now that they could look about they saw that they were on the floor of an immense cave, and that they had pitched down from somewhere near the top of it onto a huge mass of feathers. These were evidently the feathers of thousands and thousands of seabirds, but who could have picked them and stored them here so carefully? Then they heard a strange sort of coughing and grunting and spluttering, and they saw the oddest of little men. He was about three feet high, with a red beard and a very cheerful sort of face, and he had evidently been asleep in among the feathers, for he was rubbing his eyes and staring at them in astonishment. Then they heard some more grunting and coughing, and at last they saw a dozen of these little men standing all round them, dressed in the skins of animals and with feathers sticking to their beards. They were all looking rather disturbed, but when Cuthbert and Doris smiled they began to smile too, and came toward them. Then they began to talk, and though at first the sounds they made seemed very queer, 
Cuthbert and Doris, rather to their surprise, found that they could understand them perfectly well. That was because the language in which the little men spoke was the oldest language in the world, the father and mother of all the other languages, and so, of course, the children soon understood it. They also found that in a very little while they could talk in this language themselves, and soon they were all chattering together about what had happened as if they had known each other all their lives. Now that they had become used to the dim light, they could see that this great cave had walls of rock with long icicles hanging from the roof and the sticking-out pieces of the walls. Most of the floor of it was smooth ice, but in the middle there was a flat rock, and on this rock there was a little fire burning, a little fire made of coal. The leader of the men was a man called Marmaduke, and he told the children that they had all been asleep, and that they had lived in this cave for hundreds of thousands of years, and that the great pile of feathers was where they went to bed. "'But it's daytime,' said Cuthbert. "'Why do you go to bed in daytime?' Marmaduke laughed, and so did all the other men. "'Because at night,' he said, "'we go out and hunt to get our wolf and seal meat when no one can see us.' But they were all so excited at the appearance of Cuthbert and Doris that they led them to the fire where they sat and talked to them, and presently they cooked a delicious meal for them of seal soup and wolf chops. The coal that they burnt they had found in a deep hole in one corner of the cave, and at the other corner there was a little crack down which they presently led the children. This opened upon a ledge of ice five or six feet above the shore and now they could hardly see anything, because the air was full of snow, driving fiercely into their faces. The little ice-men looked grave. "'It's a blizzard,' they said, "'and very likely it'll go on for a week. But luckily we've got plenty of meat, so that we shan't be in want of food.' "'But how shall we get back?' said Doris. "'They won't know where we are, and they'll think that we're both dead.' Marmaduke shook his head. I don't exactly know, he replied, how you'd get back in any case. You could never climb up the way you came, and it's very difficult to get round the coast. But we'll have to get back somehow, said Cuthbert, because of our relations at home. Marmaduke looked puzzled. What are relations? he said, and why should you want to go back? So Cuthbert had to tell them all about his father and mother and his uncle Joe and his sister Marion and Doris had to tell them all about her mummy and her five little brothers and her aunts and cousins. They were very interested, but it was quite clear that Cuthbert and Doris couldn't leave that night, and so presently they crept in among the feathers and were soon very comfy and fast asleep. The next morning it was still snowing, but it was rather fun helping to cook the meals and the little men showed them some lovely dances that were almost as old as the world itself. For a whole week they had to stay in the cave with the blizzard raging outside, but one morning when they crept down the crack they found the sky clear and the sun shining. They could now see, towering straight above them, tremendous precipices of rock and miles of boulders and broken ice stretching out toward the horizon. Our only hope, said Cuthbert, is that Captain Jeremy and some of the fishermen will come exploring for us. And just as he said that, far in the distance, they heard the report of a gun. 
Then a long way off they saw some little figures and a tiny sleigh drawn by dogs, and they stood on tiptoe and waved and waved, hoping that Captain Jeremy might see them through his telescope. The little ice-men never came out by daylight, and when they heard what the children had seen, they made them promise on their dying oath not to tell anybody the way to the cave. Once before, they said, a learned man had discovered them, and he had tried to measure them with a pair of compasses, so they had had to kill him, as gently as they could, by putting him in the middle of the pile of feathers. Then they said good-bye, and all the little men kissed them and sent their love to everybody at home, and Cuthbert and Doris began to scramble over the ice toward the sledge-party that was now much nearer. When Captain Jeremy met them, you can guess how pleased he was, because he had made up his mind that they must have been killed, and good Mr. Smith had tears in his eyes, but they were tears of joy. Everybody at Port Jacobson, too, was so pleased that they made a big bonfire to celebrate the occasion, and they all drank the healths of the little icemen and ate a lot of sweets in their honor. When the children arrived home, however, early in May, and Cuthbert told Marion all about them, she said at first that she wouldn't believe in them because Cuthbert hadn't believed in Mr. Jug. But Cuthbert had grown wiser and less conceited, and he told Marion that he had changed his mind. So Marion believed in them, and her daddy was rather pleased, because there were more things under the earth, he said, than most people imagined. Not a twig that learned to climb in the babyhood of time, not a bud that broke the air in the days before men were, not a bird that tossed in flight ere the first man walked upright, not a bee with craftier cell than a Roman citadel, but with all its pride and pain into dust crept back again. Oh, what wisdom there must be hidden in the earth and me! End of chapter 3